Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, November 9th. Big news from the provincial government yesterday with the announcement of major health care reforms in the province. How will this impact you and your family? We get the thoughts of Chris Galloway, Executive Director of Friends of Medicare. Is the education system doing enough to teach kids about World War II and the Holocaust? Ahead of Remembrance Day, we take a look at how to keep these stories alive 78 years later with Paige McPherson, Associate Director of Education at the Fraser Institute. And finally, are you financially literate or do you find managing your personal finances stressful and overwhelming? It is Financial Literacy Month. We catch up with Bruce Celery, CEO of Credit Canada, for some tips on how to get your financial house in order. We're creating an integrated provincial health care delivery system. We believe that by creating specialized organizations within one provincial system, we will enable each organization to look after one area of healthcare only and avoid the scattered and uncoordinated approach of the more rigid centralized structure that exists now. That was a clip from Premier Danielle Smith following the announcement regarding a proposed major restructuring of Alberta Health Services and how health care services are delivered to Albertans. How will these changes impact you and your family? Joining us to talk about it is Chris Galloway, Executive Director of Friends of Medicare. Good morning, Chris. Thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Can we break down you know, some of the major changes that were announced yesterday? Can you just kind of give us a, a brief rundown of that and then we can kind of get into you know, what it means for the everyday Albertan? Yeah, I would just say uh, before getting into that, that it was pretty disappointing what we saw yesterday. It's the kind of tried and true strategy in Alberta when there's issues in healthcare, you turn to blaming AHS, you fire the board, you fire the administrator, announce some new administrative structures that'll solve the problems. And we know that that isn't the issue and won't solve the problems. So what we're seeing is the government blow up AHS, a pretty drastic restructuring. There'll be four different uh, entities providing care now. And we're quite worried about that fragmentation because in the documents we saw leaked from cabinet, a lot of what was talked about is actually privatization. So blowing the system up, create chaos, and then sell off pieces of the system uh, to for-profit providers. So we're pretty worried with what we saw yesterday and disappointed that it really did nothing to address the real issues in the healthcare system, like the workforce, like the access issues Albertans are facing. Uh, long-time Calgarians, and I know a lot of folks move here, and they may have only been here for a handful of years, Chris, but uh, we remember the Calgary Health Region, and we remember how we had these kind of sectioned off in the past. How does this look to you to be different, and is this the solution? Because we've done it before, why did we change it back, and why did we change it to, to AHS? Absolutely. We saw that chaos play out when we moved to AHS, you know, major administrative changes create disruption, they create chaos, they create confusion, and they cost a lot of money. Uh, But what we saw yesterday isn't actually what was uh, said to Albertans leading up to it. You know, there was a lot of talk of bringing back local control or local governance or rural and community input. Uh, But really, they're just tweaking the advisory councils that already exist. The governance change is creating these four entities responsible to the government, to the ministers, uh, not to health boards or rural communities. So, you know, they talked a lot about wanting to hear more from communities and have their input and governance and healthcare, but that's not what they did yesterday. You know, uh, we saw recently uh, an attempt sort of at privatization with the Dynalife fiasco, and that didn't work, and they've kind of gone back, the the UCP government has. So how does that, an incident like that, kind of shape your concerns about this restructuring plan? It's very much the same approach. It's the strategy to privatize, right? You break things up, and then you carve it up and privatize it. They did that with the lab system. We had one 
lab system in this province. They split it in two, created the idea of community labs being separate, and then contracted that out to DynaLife. And we saw the disruption that caused for Calgarians and for Albertans, waiting weeks and weeks for basic lab tests that they need for their health care. Uh, and the government finally having to admit it was a failure in bringing all that back into the public system, where we're paying to fix the issues now as the public uh, for this private company. And that's the same strategy we're seeing play out with what was announced yesterday. Split up the system, make it easier to carve off contracts. They very clearly looked to continuing care as something they could privatize long-term care homes. Uh, so we're seeing that play out again. So it seems like the government learned nothing from the DynaLife fiasco, and they're not putting patients and Albertans first in their decisions. Speaking this morning with Chris Galloway, Executive Director of Friends of Medicare. And uh, Chris, how or will this plan address concerns around staff shortages and the need for, for new hospitals? There was nothing about that in the announcement yesterday. There was no uh, answers on getting the Red Deer Hospital built or the new Edmonton Hospital built. There was nothing around staffing, and that's really the issue in the system. I've toured the whole province over the fall. I've talked to frontline healthcare workers. Their issues are staffing. They're short-staffed. They're burnt out. We're seeing closures because there aren't staff to keep facilities open. And there was nothing about recruiting doctors, nurses, other health professionals yesterday. There was nothing about retaining the folks we have, which we desperately need to do, because we know people are leaving the system or talking about leaving the province to places like BC. None of that was yesterday. All they did was create chaos, concern, uncertainty about what their jobs and their future is going to look like under new administration. Uh, and now they claim, okay, well, we'll consult healthcare workers in the weeks ahead now that we've already announced the plan. That's not what we needed, and it's really just making things worse. Um it's interesting because, you know, there, there's been much criticism about the AHS being top heavy, that, you know, upper management making too much money and that sort of thing. So would it have made more sense to sort of go after things like that as opposed to the grassroots, how it affects Albertans uh, right on the ground kind of thing in terms of what you believe the, the government's plan could have been? Yeah, we believe they should be laser focused on the workforce on the ground, uh, doctors, nurses, paramedics, health professionals. That's where the issues are. Uh, they talked a lot about AHS being top heavy or too big or bureaucratic, but this new plan creates more bureaucracies. You know, we're looking at something like 12 assistant deputy ministers to do this, uh, implementation council, tens of millions of dollars in transition money. Uh, they're really doing the opposite of making it more lean or more efficient, they're creating chaos uh, when really they should be focused on the workforce. And we heard that very clearly uh, from the AMA, from the United Nurses and others yesterday saying, this isn't what we needed. We need answers on retention and how we're going to recruit and train the workers we need to keep the system going. Chris, as we, you know, we look at this, it's a, it's a problem across the nation. And I know that we all want a solution, but what is that solution and what's the best fit for Alberta? Can we draw from any other provinces? Do you, in your viewpoint, have uh, in any ideas that uh, another province or region is doing it right, that we could adopt that plan? Yeah, that is a good point. And we do need to see some national leadership as well, because if it's just provinces competing against each other for the same pool of uh, healthcare workers, that's a race to the bottom. So we do need to have a, a national conversation about recruitment and training and immigration and these pieces. But there are other provinces who are doing things. You look to BC, who's made major moves on how they compensate and deal with doctors, who's made major moves on nurses and other health professionals in their bargaining to try to retain them and recruit, frankly, our healthcare workers uh, to move there. And we're seeing that across the country. If you go on social media or look online, you'll see all sorts of ads for, are you a nurse? Would you like to move to Nova Scotia? Here's an incentive to do that. 
We're one of the only places that don't have retention or recruitment incentives right now. And our healthcare workers are burnt out. They're tired. They're frustrated with our government. And yesterday's announcement really may be the thing that drives even more of them out of the province. It's uh, an ongoing discussion. We'll see as more rolls out from the UCP government. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Chris. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me this morning. Thanks. Chris Galloway, Executive Director of Friends of Medicare. You can go online and find out, uh, find out more. Friendsofmedicare.org. How are we keeping the stories and atrocities of World War II alive nearly 80 years later? Is our education system doing enough to continue to educate and teach the kids what happened back then? And we we're getting into this conversation, obviously, ahead of Remembrance Day this weekend. And joining us to talk about it is Paige McPherson, Associate Director of Education at the Fraser Institute. Hi, Paige. Thanks for being with us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Where are we with Holocaust education, particularly in our school system? At what age, what grade do we start teaching that in Canada? So uh, the school systems are different. They vary from province to province. It's very much a provincial jurisdiction in Canada. But in general, um, we often see sort of conversations about this topic, about Holocaust education. Um, They might start beginning at some level in grade six. Um, and, and then they really get into the details um, in, the, in the later grades, particularly grade 10 uh, in a social studies or history class, um, is really how it was. Um, now, now, what we've seen in, in Canada really across the, the country is a move away from the real fact-based education um, and curricula, you know, those real, the, the knowledge building blocks that we would normally see um, get built up by, uh, by our provincial curricula. Um, we've moved away to, to sort of the more vague concepts. And, and so what we've seen is a decline in, in, in history, for example, um, of the, those real facts. And so now that we've seen in British Columbia and Ontario, the governments come forward and say, we're going to put those Holocaust education facts back into our K-12 curriculum um, in grade 10. Um, I think that's a really positive move forward, and I think that's where there is room for improvement across the country. Paige, is is part of the issue the decades? I mean, we're reaching back almost 80 years. We've got the time. We can read it in books, read online. We can watch film strips, for example. But to find a, a, a veteran alive is a real task these days. Is that part of the issue that it's so far removed from, you know, the current time and kids have a hard time wrapping their head around 80 years ago? I think that that's a really great point. Um, for example, when we look at Holocaust survivors, there's very, very few left in the world. There's some, um, but they're, they're aging um, quite rapidly, and, and it is a lot harder for them to tell their stories. And these, these memories um, do get lost in the fog of history, of course. But, you know, as we all know, or the old saying goes, those who don't uh, know their history are doomed to repeat it. So it's really important to um, to have these fact-based discussions um, and, and learning outcomes in our K-12 curricula. As long as we're going to have um, a social studies or a history curriculum in our K-12 uh, schools in uh, across the country, you know, any curriculum worth its salt is going to uh, have a, a detailed look at just what happened in the Holocaust. And you need to have these these critical facts as building blocks because that's what actually leads to the critical thinking. So um, as my colleague Michael Zwagstra, um, who's a public school teacher in Manitoba, um, and I wrote in in the op-ed that prompted this interview, you know, you're not going to be able to have um, a student be able to, to have a meaningful contribution about societal issues when they're asked, for example, it does it make sense to 
criminalize Holocaust denial? Or um, it, should we deport suspected Nazi war criminals? This is an issue we saw come up, you know, when... Um, when that unfortunate Nazi was uh, was welcomed into Parliament, mm-hmm. um, or for, so so you know we we need to have critical conversations about these issues. But if you don't have the facts, if you don't know the dates, you don't know the names, you don't know what happened, you're really not able to get to that next level of critical thinking. And that's why this move back um, toward that fact-based education, um, I I think that, you know, your point is a really good one, but I think this can help root students back into what actually happened so they can go into the next level and realize, okay, yes, this was a long time ago, perhaps we can't relate to this, but, you know, let's keep it that way so we can't relate to this so we don't see these, these things repeating. The op-ed page is referring to is, you'll find it, at thehub.ca. Excellent article. And, and Paige, exactly what you're saying is is what I, I wanted to bring up to you and talk about because I have a, a, a son who's in grade nine and they're talking about the current war against, you know, between Palestine, uh, between the Palestinians, or ha- I should say Hamas, not Palestine, uh, between Hamas and the Israelis. And they don't know what came before so they're you know they're they're talking about i'm glad they're talking about you know a real life situation that is happening right now but they don't know the history of how it kind of got to this point and i think you sort of miss out on a lot it's hard to understand what's going on right now without that background so I, i totally agree with what you're saying we need to back it up a little bit and give kids the right tools so that they can understand moving forward yeah, that's a, it's a really great point because there are these current events that keep happening. Um, you know, these conflicts are um, thousands of years old. And, and, you know, we need to learn about that history, but certainly we need to learn about some of the, the worst atrocities that have happened, you know, on a global scale, the Holocaust being one of them. And it's hard to put the, the current um, conflict into context without understanding um, how meaningful, you know, the terrorist attack on October 7th was to... The Jewish community, it's not only because that was, you know, a horrendous thing to happen, it's also because of the history of the Holocaust and how, um, how you know, dark uh, a stain that is in Jewish history and how much that matters. And, you know, there was some uh, research done by a Canadian-Israeli philanthropic group called the Azraeli Foundation um, and found that more than one in five young people weren't sure what happened during the Holocaust. This is in Canada. Over two-thirds didn't know that six million Jews were killed. Um, 52% could not name a single concentration camp or ghetto. 32% of all respondents believe that Canada had an open immigration policy for Jewish refugees who were fleeing Europe during the Holocaust, which they very much did not. And that's another important, you know, as we talk about refugees coming from any place in the world, um, from a war zone, um, from a genocide, you know, we need to know that these policies existed in Canadian history. 22% of the Canadian youth that they surveyed had not even heard of the Holocaust. So obviously it's really, we we have a real void here in understanding amongst Mm. Canadian youth and it's not their fault. They need to be taught. And that's why it's really good to see these developments. Mm -hmm. Got a great text in from a listener named Brad Page. And uh, he says, wouldn't it be great to connect World War II with today's events and the similarity of how these things uh, came, came to be and unfold. Could that be a tool we look at trying to make these comparisons of current day that might really reach our students? Yeah, I think that, you know, that's a great point. That's why we need to have those fun foundational building blocks of understanding, understand what happened in history, 
understand, for example, as well, that, um, you know, Adolf Hitler did not appear uh, in a vacuum out of nowhere. He was a product of his time. What led to that happening? We need to learn about World War One. We need to learn about World War Two. There's, you know, there's, there's great evils that happen in, in history, but they don't just happen out of nowhere. We need to understand the context of that. And all of that begins with the um those you know critical pieces of understanding the facts that just just the basics right the names the places the dates understanding where that happens so then we can think more critically and start to connect what's happening today to what happened in the past where do we see similarities you know where do we see warning signs we have seen a rise in anti-semitism across canada today um and i i would argue that you know the current um the current state of affairs, um, the, the anti-Semitism that we're seeing happen um, in, in Canadian cities um, really shows that we do need to have that understanding in mm-hmm. place. We need to have that understanding in place to be able to call out this kind of hate when we see it um, and, and be able to properly understand and address it. Such a great conversation. Thank you so much for chatting with us this morning. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Paige McPherson, Associate Director of Education at the Fraser Institute. Get details at FraserInstitute.org. But the op-ed, again, she was referring to that she co-wrote is at thehub.ca. We all know it, especially these days. Finances can be stressful, especially with the cost of living continuing to go up, everything going up. We're all tightening our purse strings. Well, joining us with financial advice for Financial Literacy Month is our friend Bruce Celery, CEO of Credit Canada. Hi, Bruce. Hello there. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, I mean, it's never a bad time to talk about your finances, but when it's Financial Literacy Month, it just brings it home for us. So can you define that term? What is financial literacy? How do you break that down? It's basically Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, (laughs) FIFA World Cup, the Olympics, the (laughs) Toronto International Film Festival, and Stampede (laughs) rolled into one they haven't chosen a particular food to celebrate there's no pancake breakfast but i think that'll be what we'll do for 2024 so this is an initiative that uh clearly i am deeply passionate about led by the financial consumer agency of canada fcac and so there are activities happening from coast to coast to coast to get people to engage in their money in uh, a more visceral a more meaningful way and you know a part of you must be thinking, dude, don't you do this all day, every day, all the time? I do. But Santa has some sort of a job. He does the other 364 days. He gets one day. I get one month. <laughs> that's what that's what I was going to get at, Bruce. We're on the same page. We're yeah, totally. We're psycho. I mean, psychic. We're kinetic <laughs> um, in the sense that if I decide I want to get into physical shape and I choose one month of the year to walk more, do some weights, watch what I eat, that's not going to do anything. I guess this is an awareness piece because. And I'm guessing you'll, you're going to say, yeah, 30 days is not enough to very much move the needle, but a good starting point. It is a great starting point. And the other thing it gives us uh, a reason to do is to focus on some things. So this year, Credit Canada's focus is on newcomers to Canada. And there's a gazillion things that we could focus on over the course of the year. And why we chose newcomers is there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of new humans that come to our country every single year. We're grateful that they are here to uh, drive the prosperity of our Mm -hmm. country and make it so much more 
amazing every year. But there are significant challenges that they face that someone who's been in Canada for generations and generations just doesn't face. Think about it from a, a linguistic standpoint. If you arrive here without French or English, you are already starting many, many steps back because you just don't have an easy time navigating the system. You don't understand the institutions. So we know there are big banks. We know there are credit unions. We know there's the CRA. What if you had to learn all of that mm. and had to learn all of that in another language while you're trying to find a place to live, while you're trying to find a job, while you're trying to find, um, you know, schools for your kids. It is a tremendous, tremendous change. And so Credit Canada has decided, listen, we're going to double down and focus on helping newcomers to Canada. I love that. I think that's super important. And I'm sure some of that can translate to all of us as well, right? The, some lessons, 100%. some reminders. So we'll give creditcanada.com the website and, and we'll talk yeah. about that more. But I, I had a, a kind of a personal question that I was discussing with Andy this morning and I wanted to ask you your thoughts. So, I love how you just hijacked the entire interview. That's so great, Bruce. She enough about, about you, Bruce. Covers. Let's well, talk about me. She does it with every professional. It does it with every professional. There's an error on my credit card statement, and I'm wondering if you could help me solve I feel that. like if I have this question, other people probably do too. Because we, we've listened to you before. You, you tell us to be smart with our money. So here's my question. I've got a bank yeah. account with cash in it. So if I'm using, yeah. if I'm going out and I'm buying something, I use my debit card because I know that cash yeah. is there. I can't go beyond the cash in That's that right. account. But I also have a credit card that gets me points. For example, mine at the superstore, which gets me dollars off my groceries, which is important uh -huh. right now. Mm -hmm. So which one is better to use? Do I Should I stay strictly with the, the debit card because I know I can't go beyond what I have? Can I ask you a personal question? Yes. At the end of an average month, do you pay off your credit card in full, period, full stop? Yes. Then you can do whatever the heck you want. Okay. So if I, but if yeah. I'm getting beyond my means because I then can't pay off my... Then you take that credit card and you put it in a bowl of water and freeze it. Oh. And then you bury that freezer in Middle Earth. <laughs> Never <laughs> to be used again. So I guess, that's so you that's do. your bottom line. If, if, if yeah. you can't pay off the credit card at the end of the month, you shouldn't be using it. Correct. Now, so you'd expect, I walk the talk here. You would expect that I pay off my credit card every single month. I do. So I almost never use my debit card because I know that I am reliable to pay off my credit card every single month and I am cheap. Mm -hmm. I am a unit price comparer in the supermarket. So it's not, I don't mean to say that in an egotistical way, though I have an extraordinary ego in this particular <laughs> case. I don't, that, I don't mean that egotistically. But because I don't have that issue, I don't worry about it. So you think about people who live a healthy life and they just eat fruits and vegetables and they have the occasional tree and they don't drink all the time. They don't need a plan. For people who have weight they want to lose or drinks they want to reduce, they need a plan. You don't need a plan because you're already doing the things. So keep doing the things and you should focus on other things like I don't know what else you want to focus on in your life, but you'll find something. Focus on that. Do you think, Bruce, and this is interesting because we've talked time again about the history of money and growing up and we take our experiences from those conversations that we had or didn't have with our parents. Do you think because we're all in it right now, we could look at this as a positive that we are now talking about our finances mm -hmm. more openly with our mm -hmm. spouses yeah. and our kids? 100%. 
And as a deluded optimist, I always see it as a positive. So we're having this conversation. We're having this conversation in advance of what will likely be for this country some sort of an economic slowdown. So whether it's a recession or not, we don't know. But in all likelihood, there's going to be an increase in the jobless rate. There's going to be uh, tougher times ahead, even just we think about the consequences of rising interest rates. So hooray that we are talking about these things now and doing the best we can to get ahead of it. Because a part Part of those conversations is illuminating brutally difficult priorities that we have to make. We have to make really, really tough, tough choices. And uh, communication is critical such that we can make those tough, tough choices with the information available and with the buy-in of the people who are going to be affected by those mm -hmm. choices. Andy touched on it too, Bruce. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Is there anything that you shouldn't talk about or we can even flip that what should you primarily talk to your kids about when it comes to finances because it's different for them they don't hold cash sure. in their hand anymore like we did you know that you don't go yeah. to, you don't walk to the bank and and you know get a printout of your what's in your account kind of thing yeah yeah, I don't think there's anything you can't talk about. There are things that you would um, think about as as age and stage. So I don't think grownups need to talk about salaries, the salary that they make at their work with a, a, a teenager, because it's out of context. But I think how we as a family determine what our priorities are, are Amazing, hugely important. If you can't think of the last time you had a conversation with uh, your spouse or your kids about money, guaranteed it has been too long because it's the kind of thing you can talk about all the time not in these big like we're having a money meeting on sunday if you want the pot roast you got to talk about money first it's just like oh yeah i'll go to the grocery store oh my gosh so great um i used my loyalty card and today was a day when i got 20 bucks back off that that's so great and there was a sale on this there was a sale on that done three i, I have a teenager i know that the amount of time i can talk about particular topics is somewhere between 12 and 13 seconds <laughs> Exactly. Somewhere between 12 and 13. And it's like, okay, enough and we're of done. that funny yep. talk. Stop. We're done. I, I just want to, you know, bring it back to something you, you said a couple minutes ago about, you know, moving toward a recession. And it, the whole thing is interesting because I thought we were already entering that recession and, um, mm. you know, turning the corner. What do you see in your crystal ball? I was saying to Sue that I really think that it'll be in the spring where we're going to be hit the hardest. Do you think that's the case after Christmas and after heating bills that are kind of sky high? Yes, I do. Uh, and the, the, where, the nuance would be is where are you in your mortgage renewal cycle? So we know that 2024 is going to be a big, big year for people who are renewing their mortgage. And for most people, that means their um, monthly payments going up simply mm -hmm. because they had this ridiculously amazing fixed rate mortgage. Suddenly they're renewing and they're like, <laughs> it's another $300. It's another $600 a month. Where is that money going to come from? So uh, the banks are watching this. The regulators are watching this. I'm watching this. What happens as we move into to those renewals and it's not just 2024 it's going to continue through 2025 we will keep talking to you beyond what is happening this month financial literacy month you're always great to help us out with personal questions which i think again they relate to all of Love us all we're that. all you know experiencing the same stuff so thank you so much for breaking it down bruce always appreciate you are welcome you. one thing creditcanada.com slash newcomers this whole e-learning thing in eight languages eight languages and you can even do it too even though you're not a newcomer CreditCanada.com slash newcomers. Thank you, Bruce. That's it. Bruce Celery. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bruce Celery is the CEO of Credit Canada.